0: It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, April 30th, 2009. Tomorrow's May Day. May Day. May Day. We're coming in for a crash. Landing. (laughs) Still not 100% but definitely better than yesterday on the sore throat front. Just don't tell Bill, Bill Shear from Guts Church, otherwise he'll accuse me of not having enough faith. All right, welcome to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. Dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, to compare what people are saying in the name of God, in the name of Jesus Christ, to what the scriptures say. And folks, I am not even remotely close to being exempt from this little exercise. In fact, if you want to pass the midterm, yeah, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, we'll be having a midterm on all the materials that we've covered so far here, fighting for the faith over the, you know, really the last eight months or so. And if you want to pass the midterm, then you had (laughs) better start comparing what I say to the Word of God, because that's... Uh, there's, that's, a good, that's one of the components for the midterm Just want to let you know And by the way, sucking up to the program host Will not get you extra credit on the test Just want to let you know that Alright, we've got a good program lined up today um, We've got listener email that we're going to be talking about Got a great idea from Ray from L.A. We're going <clears> to <throat> take our first crack at uh, listening to that He had an idea um, We've got news today United Methodist uh, Church rejects a gay marriage resolution We'll be reading the news on that And then we got a news story about a minister who's launched a spiritual but not religious movement. Uh, Yeah, that's right. A minister uh, claims that he teaches in churches, and we'll be listening to a little bit of what this guy teaches, uh, claiming that he has started a spiritual but not religious movement. And uh, we'll be <clears throat> listening to some of what he has to say. Uh, we're go- I'm going to be reading a meditation on Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10 that I wrote and have posted at extremetheology.com. We will continue working our way through the book of Exodus. And then I think it would be appropriate that we do this. Uh, here at Fighting for the Faith, we actually play the SOCO lectures. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the work of SOCO. SOCO stands for South Orange County Outreach, and... Um, uh, the the guy who runs Soco uh, is a member in good standing at Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. And Soco, not you know, a while ago, uh, recorded a lecture by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on uh, the gospel for those broken by the church. We're going to be listening to that, and definitely I'll be interrupting and interjecting as uh, you know as that goes by. And so, but definitely something w- I would like you to listen to to hear and. Uh, and uh, consider, and then uh, because I'll be interrupting it, it won't be a clean copy. If you would like to get a copy of it later, then you would contact New Reformation Press uh, in order to po- uh, to purchase a copy of it. Uh, by the way, I've been, I don't know what has gotten into the water. Uh, folks, uh, I've gotten more email today over uh, the, uh, the Obama administration apparently is going to end free speech in America. Aside from the fact that that sounds like complete... Uh, knee-jerk, a uh, complete knee-jerk reaction. Um, yeah, let me just say this. Uh, Pirate Christian Radio is not a licensed radio station. And even if they were to enact the Fairness Doctrine, it would not apply to us. That's right. Believe it or not, it would not apply to Pirate Christian Radio because we're an internet-based radio station and we're not licensed by the federal communications uh, people. So we don't have to worry about losing our license because... We say things such as homosexuality is a sin. Now, just so you know, okay, we, we have developed a contingency plan. Should everything go to hell in a handbasket, Obama reveals himself to be nothing less than the Antichrist himself, and uh <laughs> OK, we have an end times uh, worst case scenario scenario worked out. And that is, is that if for some strange reason, all of the free speech and communication on the Internet comes to a grinding halt and we're no longer able to broadcast on the Internet, we'll turn pirate Christian radio into a subscription based service. And uh, it's real simple. We'll duplicate CDs and send them to people who uh, who will pay a subscription fee. Hopefully the Obama administration won't uh, govern the mail. <laughs> so uh, one way or another pirate Christian radio will do what pirate Christian radio does because this is pirate Christian radio. We're a pirate radio network. So no one's going to silence the gospel unless they want to come and kill us. And I just don't see that in the near future. So those of you who are freaking out and sending me emails saying, Chris, you are going to take away your ability to do, just stop, please. Let's uh, take one day at a time here. And uh, just keep in mind, we're going to continue getting the gospel out, even if it becomes illegal to do so. Just so you know, I'm on the record now. It's recorded. It's it's on the Internet. It's And I'll put it on the podcast. If the United States government turns into Satan's kingdom here on Earth, highly unlikely that's going to happen overnight or anything like that. But should it happen... I'm on record, and I promise you, unless there is a bullet in my brain or unless I'm dragged into prison, we will find a way to keep doing what we're doing, and I will defy any law that tells me I can't say the truth. So there we go. You just want to, I don't know what happened. What is going on? All right. I got an email from um, Ray in LA. And uh, Ray writes, he says, I'm not sure if you caught this, but the opening for Are You Out of Sync video from Granger played is a ripoff of a commercial that played during this year's Super Bowl uh, for a job search website, I believe. Interestingly enough, I don't think it was that funny or clever uh, when, I was a, it, when it was a Super Bowl ad, much less in Granger's cause, where it's a subverting the truth of the gospel. However, I think someone should follow their lead and make a version about searching for a new church. Now, You know, Ray, this was a fantastic idea, and we put our creative team on it. Just wanted to let you know, and uh, I happen to be the only member of our creative team. So (laughs) So I I took your idea and uh, decided to see if we could implement it, at least some kind of a version of it. Now, there's a redundancy in the uh, initial, uh, in the Granger one, but that being the case... uh, we still were able to you know kind of put together a rough sketch of what we think this should what should sound like hang on a second let me um uh oh, there we go. Okay, sorry about that. So um without any further ado, here is uh, Ray gave us an idea and we took your idea Ray where you basically said if your uh, church music is focused not uh, uh, on you and not on Christ, you might need a new church. Here was Ray's ideas just a- executed. Here we go. Uh <clears throat> let's see. This is called Time for If your church's music is focused on you and not on Christ.
1: Come on, sing it out. Here we go.
0: might need a new church. If you're only being taught law and not the gospel, you see, it takes more than
2: belief. It takes more than faith to really please God.
0: You might need a new church. If your pastor doesn't care about you personally,
2: we have people come to this church going, I want a church where I can know the pastor. I could never go to a church where I can know the pastor. You need to leave. I don't have time. I love my wife, I love my kids, and I will not sacrifice my, my family on the ministry altar so I can come eat food that I don't like and hang out with people that make me uncomfortable.
0: You might need a new church. If Jesus and the scriptures only make cameo appearances...
1: I heard a story about a farmer that had an old mule that had fallen into an empty well. It was about 40 or 50 feet deep, and the farmer was so disappointed. He really loved this old mule. But when he surveyed the situation, he re-
0: you might need a new church. Well, the,
1: all right. So there you go. That was
0: our rough sketch. You know, we're going I'm gonna try to uh, put this together with a little bit more polish. But I mean, I put that together in about 20 minutes, real quick there at the, before we went on the air. So I, you know, Ray, that was a great idea. I absolutely think that there's some potential here. Might have to put that into the rotation here at Fighting for the Faith once we get it professionally <clears throat> mixed down. Anyway, and uh, Ray also writes, he says, finally, a corrective comment. As much as I enjoy table talk, radio, and the astuteness of uh, seminarian gagline, line as uh, one who holds a bachelor's degree in English creative writing emphasis, I must point out that a complete sentence only needs a subject and a verb. Uh, an object is not needed. So we sing on its own can be a complete sentence just as Jesus wept is a complete sentence. Thank you. Uh, Ray, appreciate the uh, <clears throat> the grammatical correction there. Uh, you know, Seminarian Gagland, he's a young man, and he definitely needs that kind of uh, correction. I appreciate you lovingly pointing that out to him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Warren writes, uh, he says, Dear Rosenheimer, I got a chuckle from the term you coined recently when you said gospel. However, I had to disagree with its implied use. You were responding to a sermon that indicated that the pastor or self-help guru was preaching law gospel law. Your term, though, seems to imply law seems to imply law gospel law. So I thought I'd chime in with my own variation and see if you approve. I propose that what's actually happening in the preaching of the uh, the of the law and the uh, uh, gospel law. law and gospel law i have been subjected to this type of preaching many a time and have complete, uh, completely understood understand the confusion that it brings i hear the law then thankfully the gospel and then the carpet is pulled right out from under me as quickly as leaving me to reconcile how to ignore the gospel i just heard since it was for those in our congregation who have yet made a decision for christ and somehow live up to the law again yeah, that's right um, so many times in these uh, in these newfangled, seeker-driven, pietistic churches, and that's what they are, uh, they don't preach the gospel to believers. You'll hear the gospel, but it flies right over your head if you've already made a decision, and it only applies to those people who haven't made a commitment yet. And he says, even after I started listening uh, to you and began talking to my wife about what I was hearing, we would have conversations like, yeah, but doesn't the Scripture indicate that we're supposed to be growing in holiness? It's very easy for our carnal minds to make the leap to working to impress God versus seeking Christ and His righteousness and seeing sanctification worked out in our lives through the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Bingo! Great point, Warren. You know, I'm going to give you two pirate Christian radio points for that. I have no idea what those are worth, but... Um, you, 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 another great point, sanctification is really, um, you know, is done, not you solo trying to figure out how to apply the right principles or magical strategies for holiness. It's really through the power of the Holy Spirit, the working of the Holy Spirit. And, and it, when it comes to sanctification, yes, we participate with the Holy Spirit in it, but it, we it, we're not cut off from him and it's definitely we're being sanctified through the sanctifying work of the holy spirit through uh through god's word through the sacraments through the preaching of the law the preaching of the gospel all comes together anyway so for someone who uh for so long understood that christian faith to be law and gospel law this is still a tough one to reconcile in my mind if i i find it's so easy for the carnal mind to turn the gospel back into law again yes you're right Why? Because people can't, they don't, it sounds too good to be true. Come on, you mean I'm only saved? I'm saved only by what Christ did and not anything that I've done? Oh, come on, I have to have contributed something. uh, That sounds too easy. So yeah, we go back to that. In fact, Warren, I would strongly recommend Stay tuned and listen to the entire program today, especially when we uh, play uh, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's uh, Soko lecture, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. This, I think that'll clear things up for you, to, so stay tuned and listen to that. It's going to absolutely be helpful for you. Okay, moving along um, to the news. Hang on a second here. I've got to get my computer into the, uh, the news uh, posture here. <laughs> We read from the Christian Post, the United Methodist Church rejects gay marriage resolution. Interesting. You wouldn't expect that from the uh, United Methodist Church. The United, the United Methodist Court, sorry, is rejects gay marriage resolution. Let's find out what the details of all this is all about. The United Methodist Church's top court recently ruled that clergy, both active and retired, cannot perform same sex marriages or civil unions. Wow, that coming from one of the most liberal church bodies in the, well, on the planet. Performing such services is a chargeable offense. Bishop Beverly J. Uh, Shamana ruled last Friday. Uh, the United Methodist Church's Judicial Council affirmed her decision. Yeah, you know what's funny is, is I find something very ironic about that sentence. You have a female bishop being the spokesperson against uh speaking against gay marriage does anyone find that odd to you how many of jesus's disciples were women you know the of the 12 apostles those guys you know how how many of them none Anyway, all right, so the council further ruled that an annual conference or regional body within the United Methodist Church may not negate, ignore, or violate provisions of the discipline with which they disagree, even when the disagreements are based on, consens- on consens- uh, consensus objections with to the provision. The council's ruling was on a resolution passed by the California-Nevada Annual Conference last year. Months ago, after the California Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, along with providing pastoral ministry to same-gender couples, a resolution would allow retired clergy to perform marriage ceremonies for gay and lesbian couples. More than 80 retired United Methodist clergy from, the Northern, Ca- from Northern California had offered to conduct same-sex marriage ceremonies on behalf of clergy who cannot perform them. Uh, I guess the thinking is is that if they're retired, what's the United Methodist Church going to do? Uh, fire them? They're retired. Anyway, they signed a covenant stating we must not deny ministerial services to anybody because of their sexual orientation. We will witness that United Methodists in California uh, Nevada Annual Conference do have open hearts, open minds, and open doors, whatever that means. And we will not tolerate the exclusion of gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender people from our ministry. See, this would be the 80 retired United Methodist people. Given that the United Methodist Book of Discipline, which embodies church law, forbids churches and clergy from performing same-sex unions, the resolution also sought lenient disciplinary action against uh, clergy who disobey church law on this issue. All right, so let's see if I got this straight. The United Methodist Court has stated that they cannot perform same-sex marriages and their solution, you know, where we've come down hard and made it clear you can't do this, uh, but the disciplinary action would be um, minor. Uh, maybe a slap on the wrist. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> that's interesting. Um, you know, while Bishop Shamana called the resolution a commendable gesture in offering pastoral counseling and same-sex couples desiring marriage, uh, she stated in her decision that if steps over, uh, that if... It steps over a disciplinary line when it commends these clergy to the congregations for the purpose of performing same-gender marriages or holy unions. In a dissenting opinion, Council Member F. Belton Joyner, Jr. said, the willingness of some retired clergy to perform same-gender marriages or unions does not prescribe or recommend a violation of the Book of Discipline. Unless changes are made to the provisions in the Book of Discipline, an annual conference may not advise local churches of the availability of clergy who are willing— to officiate same-sex marriages. Wow, interesting. They're debating what their church, their book of discipline teaches. Why is it that they're not looking at what God's word teaches? Just, you know, uh, maybe this is an oversight on their part. Yeah, we might want to send them an email or something and remind them you know, that uh, the book of discipline is not the Bible and the Bible trumps the book of discipline. And the Bible's pretty clear on the same sex, on homosexuality, and that it's uh, sin. So <clears throat> I know that sounds unloving of me to make such a case, but that's what the scriptures say. So in love, I must communicate that to um, our friends out there who are engaged in, uh, homosexual behavior because it's sinful. And by the way, I'm a sinner too. So, um, just want to make sure that you understand. I'm not saying that because I'm se- self-righteous. I'm just conveying what it is that God's word says. And if you don't like what God's word, take it up with Jesus. He seems to be the authority on the matter. All right. Um, here we go. Uh, next uh, story. Minister launches spiritual, but not religious movement. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Um, minister launched a spiritual, but not religious movement. Those who identify themselves as spiritual, but not religious have a new home. Oh, praise God. I mean, yay. Uh, the SBNR.org was launched this month in Grand Haven, Michigan for the millions of people in the United States who desire a deep experience of life without the limitations and baggage of doctrine and religion. As stated on their website, a social media company, SBNR.org was founded by Ian Lawton, an Australian minister who describes himself as independent, as an independent spiritual teacher. Quote, I'm happy now to number myself amongst the millions of people around the world who describe ourselves as spiritual But not religious, Lawton tells visitors to the website. A Newsweek poll released earlier this month found that 30% of American adults describe themselves as spiritual only. Among the younger unchurched population, 43% identify as SBNR, according to surveys conducted by the Center for Missional Research in the North American Mission Board and Lifeway Research. Young adults are more likely to consider themselves spiritual but not religious than spiritual and religious according to the spiritual but not website spiritual but not religious describes a new worldview that is inclusive and open as opposed to separatist and closed Uh, the, the aspect of religion that sbnr folk prefer to live without is the limitation of beliefs that are out of step with life as we experience it let me read that sentence again the aspect of religion that spiritual but not religious folk prefer to live without is the limitation of beliefs that are out of step with life as we experience it in other words uh, your life experience trumps the word of god if you are, if you perceive that your life experience contradicts the word of god and the last thing we need for, you know these spiritual but not religious people are saying is is for us to be for you to be shoving your doctrines and religious beliefs down our throats we don't down with doctrine who needs sola scriptura kill god we were going to build our own any so anyway this uh led me to the spiritual but not website and uh, wow was that interesting um let's see here let's see if i can find some highlights from the spiritual but not uh website yeah here's ian lawton uh the founder of spiritual but not that's sbnr um, for those of you following along at home, here's Ian Lawton.
3: Hi, I'm Ian Lawton, and I'm so glad that you found your way to espionage.org. For the last two decades, I've been a spiritual teacher in various churches around the world, and I have heard so many stories. Where? It's her- churches? You've been a
0: spiritual teacher in ch- churches around the world? Um, if, if they were really true Christian churches, they should have thrown you out. Uh, well, we continue.
3: ...from people who want to have their spirits nurtured, want to be part of something that is... Imp- My spirit needs nurturing?
0: Are you offering uh, basically a spiritual nursery
3: to offer a spiritual nurturing? Passionate, and inspired, but don't feel that that happens within mainstream religion. I'm happy now to... But don't feel, but don't... Feel that that happened. Don't feel that that happened. Did I
0: mention the fact feelings? Feelings. Nothing more than feelings. So apparently, um, this is a place, if you don't feel like you're being spiritually nurtured by, you know, any of the major world religions, then spiritual but not religious is your cup of tea. You can have the God that you feel most comfortable with.
3: Yeah. I myself amongst the millions of people around the world. Who describe ourselves as spiritual but not religious. If that's part of your story, then I want to tell you that you have arrived home. We've created this organization for... Really, actually,
0: this is what we would call the waiting room. See, if, if, you, if, you, wanna, if you believe that you've arrived at home at the spiritualbutnotreligious.org website, we call that a waiting room. That's the place where Satan, that would be the prince of darkness, makes his victims comfortable. It keeps them distracted um, and holds them there in that waiting room until they die or until Christ comes. And then he drags their carcasses off to hell.
3: For you, we want to work with you and together keep this organization moving. We want the SBNR network to have a legitimate voice in the world. We want to offer resources. You want a legitimate voice in the world?
0: Well, you know, as long as you're not Christian, I mean, you have a legitimate voice. But as soon as you start talking about, you know, Jesus Christ being the only way, you know, the way, the truth and the life, no one coming to the Father except for through him. Jesus Christ crucified for our sins, raised from the dead. See, that's when you don't get a legitimate voice. I mean, listen there, Ian. Everybody's going to embrace you. I mean, you are going somewhere. You are going to be really, really popular and successful. I guarantee it. Just, um, when Christ comes back, you might want to throw a rock on yourself, though. Um, we continue.
3: We want to inspire you. We want to get your story. We want to hear your inspiration. Together, we can be an incredible force for love in the world. So I hope you'll take the chance now to look around the site, take what's meaningful for you, stay tuned. Please give us your feedback about what you want to see happen with this movement.
0: What I'd really like to
3: see happen with your
0: movement is, is that you open up your Bibles, see that you are in outright sin and idolatry by inventing your own religion in God, and that you repent and receive the forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus Christ. That would be my hope and prayer for your movement. By the way, if you were confused about what on earth... Uh, spirituality is, you know, I can, couldn't quite figure it out myself either. There's actually a webpage there at SBNR.org called What is SBNR? And it talks about what is spirituality. It attempts to define this really nebulous, um, jello type word. Uh, I read from their website The more I pay attention to the ordinary wonders of life, the less I need, the less need I have for extraordinary miracles. Life, lived fully in the here and now, is sufficient to keep me wonderstruck for eternity. You know, this sounds like a lot of these seeker drives, uh, seeker-sensitive guys. And spirituality draws me deeper into the moment. Uh, what does that word me- phrase mean? Anyway, it, it's the experience, I- inspiration, and awareness that evoke meaning, connections, and the rapture of life. Spirituality is humanity that is experienced deeply. Let me read that sentence again because, wow, that's vague. Um, Spirituality is humanity that is experienced deeply. By the way, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this little passage of scripture, Ian, but uh, Romans chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 2, they all pretty much claim that we are all under sin. By nature, we are sinful, corrupt, at war with God, that kind of thing. So when you say that uh, spirituality is humanity that is experienced deeply, you know, those people who've died in prisoner of war camps, um, concentration camps, um, they were definitely ex- having a deep experience of humanity, of the wickedness and evil of humanity. Would you consider that to be spiritual? Just wondering. Anyway, he says, it is real. It is fun. It is practical. It is it is joy. It's pain. It is extraordinarily ordinary. <sighs> anyway let me read some more here um um, spirituality is children experiencing the power of now lovers experiencing the wonder of connection families experiencing the joy of spontaneity um activists experiencing a passion for justice artists experiencing creative inspiration scientists experiencing the wonder of discovery and friends experience the power of connection animals and plants experience the abundance and the flow of nature wow Uh uh-huh spirituality honors all universal wisdom including wisdom that flows through religion people who are spiritual may find greater resonance in one or many religious traditions But the wisdom is universal. The religion is the language or culture around which wisdom is expressed. Religion is the map. Spirituality is the terrain. Religion is the menu. Spirituality is the meal. Spirituality is the joy and the miracle of being alive. Universal wisdom includes from Buddhism, the liberation from compulsion, mental conditioning, monkey mind. Uh, From Judaism, the authenticity and meaning of storytelling and community. From Christianity, the incarnation of divine compassion. Does Rob Bell work for you guys? Just wondering. I, we might want to look to see if Rob Bell's on the board of director for Spiritual but Not Religious. Wow. When we get back, I'm going to play for you just another little soundbite from you, just to give you an idea of the spirituality that's being plugged by these spiritual but not religious people. Because I know that you really you need to experience this firsthand. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, want to remind you. Uh, That uh, if you would like to email me you can at talkback at com. that's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com if you'd like to be my friend on Facebook you can I'm a friendly guy or if you'd like to follow me on Twitter yeah that's right we have our secret subversive tweets going out on Twitter Uh, only to those who subscribe Pirate Christian is my name there we'll be right back
1: Sissioperfied religiosity won't save you. You're listening to fighting for the faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine. Ha. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the octagon. It's called Rex Kwon Do. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. I'm um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor. Okay. Now I'm going to give you one chance, one chance people, turn around, turn around, alright. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now listen everybody, the reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay, when I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight week program, you're going to learn these things. First off. In Rex Quan we use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. Do you think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be EXTREME! Now for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church.
0: We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the Gospel and sound Biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non negotiable doctrine as well as its rich, historical pedigree after reading this book you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine pierce for our transgressions is available at pirate christian and is only 25 dollars plus four dollar shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support pirate christian radio so log on to pirate christian and order your copy Today, all right, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. And I am Chris Rosebro, your servant in Jesus Christ. Warning. This program could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. Especially if your pastor is not giving you the goods. And what are the goods? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The amazing good news of the forgiveness of sins. In fact, um, before I remind you that we're listener supported, I want to read something. Uh, this is from CFW Walther, who is the uh, first president, uh, the, kind of the founder of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And this guy is famous for his book entitled Law and Gospel. And talking about the office of the ministry, that would be the pastoral office. He writes, he says, Oh, glorious office, no matter how sick a person may be in his soul, the gospel can can heal him. No matter how deeply a person has fallen into the corruption of sin, the gospel can pull him out. No matter how troubled, frightened, and afflicted a person may be, the gospel can comfort him. Whatever the condition in which a person finds himself, even if he is convinced that he must perish because of it, the preachers can confidently oppose him saying, no, as certainly as God lives, he does not want the death of any sinner. You shall not perish. Instead, you shall be saved turn to jesus who can evermore save all who come to god through him and if any if one who lies near death calls out god what have i done woe to me now it is too late i am lost the preachers should call to him no no it is not too late Commit your departing soul to Jesus. You shall still be with him in paradise today. O oh, glorious, high office, too high for the angels. May we always hold it in high regard. Not looking at the person who bears it and despising his weakness, but looking instead at the institutor of this office and his exuberant goodness. Let us turn to him in faith so that we can experience the blessings of which the preachers have spoken and through them be gathered together one day into the barns of heaven as a completely ripe sheaf. (laughs) Those are the pastors we like because they're telling us the truth. Give me a pastor who's going to give me Christ and him crucified for my sins. Feed me with God's word. Give me Christ's body and blood to eat and drink every Sunday. Oh, for the forgiveness of sins. That's what it says. All right. Um, I want to remind you Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio, which means your financial support is vital for us to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, to partner with us, you can visit fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of the donate buttons, or you can do it the traditional way and make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box. Five zero eight Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. All right, as promised, I'd like to give you a little bit more of a, <clears throat> of a feel for uh, what the spiritual but not religious guy is all about by listening to um, one of his. Uh, what? How do I put this? It's not a sermon, even though. Um, he's preaching in something that looks like a church. And the name of this message is called Rising Above Bitterness. I mean, doesn't that sound so spiritual to you? I mean, it sounds spiritual to me. So here is uh, Ian Lawton um, of uh, sbnr.org teaching about rising above bitterness.
3: In the Christian tradition of this time of year, we remember and celebrate the death and the rebirth of Jesus.
0: The rebirth of Jesus? We we can't even get out of your first paragraph. Sorry.
3: There are as many theories about uh, the nature of Jesus as there are people.
0: Rather than going with the theories, why don't you just go with what he said about himself, son of God, you know, the I am of the Old Testament, God in human flesh, no theories necessary.
3: And so, in the light spirit of fun, to begin this, I want to offer you some inconclusive—sorry, some some conclusive evidence—that Jesus was Jewish. What? You see, he lived at home until he was 33. He went in. Dude, you're making this. Whoa. Into his father's business. He believed his mother was a virgin, and his mother believed that he was God conclusive evidence that Jesus was Jewish that was definitely
0: spiritual but not religious
3: but I could also give you conclusive evidence that Jesus was Californian you see he walked around in bare feet most of the time never got a haircut and he was so cynical about religion that he created his own
0: (laughs) that was definitely spiritual but not religious
3: but even better evidence again I can give you conclusive evidence that Jesus was, in fact, a woman. You see, he fed a huge crowd of people with no food. He tried, tried, tried to convince a group of men to understand him, but they couldn't get it. And even when he was dead, he still had to get up to do more work.
0: I think this counts as blasphemous, but not religious.
3: Conclusive evidence. Jesus was, in fact, a woman. All Western people, I want to suggest to you, even those who are not religious, have some ideas about Jesus loitering in the corridors of our consciousness.
0: Very well, you know, just might want to give him a ticket and tell them to move along
3: ideas about Jesus, many of which come from the musical, and we heard a section of it this morning, Jesus Christ Superstar, and didn't they do an amazing job? Uh (laughs) Love the energy of that. Many of us, particularly those of us who are around in the early 70s, have been influenced by that musical to have some ideas about Jesus. What I find most fascinating about the Jesus Christ... Uh,
1: <laughs> you're
0: going to preach on the Jesus Christ in Jesus Christ Superstar.
3: Oh, boy. Superstar musical is its reinterpretation of the character of Judas... And I want to speak this morning about Judas in particular. That Judas has always had a very bad rap. Judas is... Yeah, you know,
0: uh, he... Beat, uh, <clears throat> have you read the books? You know, the Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You know, Judas, um, he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He got a bad rap? This is definitely... Not religious. No, I, you know.
3: Always been seen as the epitome of evil. In Sunday school, I was taught that Judas was the pin-up boy for betrayal. And you know, when I was a kid, I thought his name was Judas Asparagus. <laughs> and the reason, I thought there was a reason for that. I believe the reason that he was called Judas Asparagus was because he was so evil that they had to name him after the nastiest tasting vegetable alive. <laughs> Judas asparagus. Now, I wonder how many of you have this notion of Judas in your mind Judas as the unrepentant snitch. How many of you have that idea? You've grown up with it. We assume that Judas was the epitome of evil. And yet, Andrew Lloyd Webber. In 1971, created a musical with a different interpretation of Judas.
0: Yeah, because, you know, in 1971, uh, that's 1971 years. Was Andrew Lloyd Webber a, an eyewitness 1970 something years after? Never
3: mind. He gave Judas all the best songs, arguably, in the musical. I have to tell you, what an honor to have my own son playing the part of Judas in the musical this morning. I didn't have to pay him any pieces of silver to get up here in front of you. And can you believe his voice is about an octave deeper than mine and he's 14 years old. But that's a whole other story. What I find fascinating about Jesus Christ Superstar is this new interpretation of Judas A positive interpretation of Judas is presented through Jesus Christ Superstar where Judas is actually presented as a man with deep conscience, a man who has a heart for the poor.
0: Yeah, that's why he was stealing the money from the poor bag.
3: A man who fulfills the requests of his leader, Jesus. That's right,
0: folks, just to kind of let that sink in for a second. Um, in the spiritual but not religious, uh, I, I don't know what you would call it. it it's, it's not, it wouldn't be a sermon because that would be religious. In the spiritual but not religious um, um, op-ed, standing op-ed piece, I, you know, uh, enlightening uh, spiritual conversational piece, I don't know what this is. Um, th- what we're hearing is this guy telling us about these strong spiritual virtues, but not religious virtues, uh, spiritual virtues of uh, Judas Iscariot, uh, the man who betrayed Jesus Christ. Um, wow. Anybody hoping that Jesus himself will sh- like show up any minute now and put an end to this stuff, please?
3: And I want to suggest that Andrew Lloyd Webber was prophetic in offering this new interpretation of Judas because it wasn't many years later that the Gnostic Gospel of Judas was discovered. (laughs) What?
0: (laughs) The Gnostic Gospel of Judas is supposedly giving us a
3: historically accurate picture of Jesus? Oh, man. The Gospel of Judas presenting a completely different picture of the man Judas.
0: That's because it's not historically accurate?
3: In the Gospel of Judas, he's presented as being completely aligned with Jesus. In fact, Jesus had... Yeah, that's why he betrayed Jesus. ...asked him to do what he did. Jesus asked him to do it? Oh, boy. He asked him to be central in his plans, to bring all of his plans to a head... So in the Gospel of Judas, the character of Judas is not the epitome of evil. He is the epitome of obedience and alignment.
0: Wow. Hang on a second. I'm checking the YouTube video. No, I don't see any horns coming out of this guy's head. Well, I can't tell if he has a tail either, but this... Yeah, well, there it is. Okay. Yes, definitely smells like sulfur. So...
3: With the will of Jesus. Now, I'm not suggesting that this new interpretation of Judas is the correct one. All I'm suggesting is that you might broaden your perspective.
1: <coughs> what?
0: I'm not telling you it's correct, it's, but you just need to broaden your perspective. Did God really say? Did God really say, yep, definitely sulfur?
3: Take a broader perspective on this character, Judas. You see, we don't know the whole story.
0: (laughs) Oh, man.
3: Try and leave behind your assumptions you know, the, try to leave behind any
0: real biblical knowledge that you might have and broaden your, your perspective to this brand new perspective that isn't really a true perspective so that you can experience spirituality but not religion.
3: And approach Jesus and Judas with fresh eyes. Really? Fresh eyes? <clears throat> with a fresh perspective
0: rather than the old dusty one that's been, you know, kicking around collecting dust in the church for the last few thousand years. One of those old dead white guys know anyway about Jesus. Come on. They were relying on that old dusty book called the Bible, you know, the eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ, you know, from the people who walked with him, talked with him, ate with him, traveled with him, witnessed him performing miracles like, you know, uh, turning water into wine walking on the water uh hushing the gal the sea of galilee during a storm with a with a hush uh, uh let's see raising the dead healing the blind uh cleansing the lepers uh you know stuff like uh, don't listen to those guys you need to listen to this really old this this book that came like 400 years later called the gospel of judas and approach the stories with a fresh perspective. Right,
3: and I came across an interview with the original JC the original Jesus Christ superstar Ted Neely he played Jesus in the 1971 Broadway production
0: well that makes him an expert
3: he was then in the movie and he's been playing Jesus ever since Ted Neely seems like a very interesting man not only does he play the part Excellently, he also seems to be a very gentle, empowered, compassionate human being.
0: Empowered by what?
3: It seems that Ted Neely, the original Jesus Christ superstar, is spiritual but not religious.
0: Oh, well, see, that means we shouldn't listen to anything he says.
3: (sighs) He doesn't embrace any particular religious organization. Well, see, <laughs> That.
0: <laughs> welcome to the world of the anti-expert. In order to be considered to be truly authoritative on a subject, the prove your credentials, you can't actually subscribe to any particular concept of truth. In fact, the, the less you know about truth, the less you confess about the truth, the more qualified you are to speak about the truth. You've got to be kidding me
3: and prefers a universal approach. Ah, uh, yeah. In the interview, he said this. It's not that I know something. Uh-huh, yeah. It's just there's a feeling of spirituality that I believe we all have.
0: Not that I know something. It's a feeling of spirituality. Feelings, nothing more than feelings. Wow. God apparently didn't give people brains to use.
3: I truly believe there is a universal spirituality that we all share, no matter what we may believe in, even if you're an absolute (laughs) non-believer.
0: Well, there you have it, folks. That is just some deep, deep, deep spiritual kimchi And now for the Jesus Christ Superstar overture number 1 in stereo from the 1973 movie Jesus Christ Superstar Can feel the spirit moving turned off my brain and just reached out with my spirit man oh, it feels just like a lobotomy but I can imagine myself to be one with the universe and how do I know that I'm one with the universe because I don't know it can feel. uh, Yes, spiritual, spiritual. Oh, the spirit is rising. 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 Can't you feel it? Turn off your brains, folks. Just reach out like Luke using the force. Reach out with your feelings. You don't want to be religious. Just be spiritual. Now if you're thinking right now, oh you got to stop that. that. That that's religious. You've got to be spiritual now. Come on. Come on feel it. Feel it. Feel it. i, I I'm, I've lost the feeling. Oh man, I must be doing something wrong. There it was. It was right there. I could just feel it. It was just, and, and then whoosh, it disappeared. Uh, some stupid pesky thought came into my brain. Oh, down with thoughts. Down with religion. Down with, you know, we need spiritual stuff. How do we know somebody's not qualified to talk about religion? Because they believe in something! You've got to stop believing and just feel. No dogma. Just feel it. Maybe if I took recreational drugs that would help. Not sure, not sure. Ah, there it is. Nirvana itself. Yes. Yes. Jesus, the spiritual guru guy. Oh, there it went again. Darn it. Man, I hate when that happens. (laughs) Folks, I, I, I have no idea what to say about what we just heard. Oh man! All I can say is maranatha. Lord Jesus, come quickly. And if He doesn't come quickly, then uh, I hate to say this, uh, you, 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 we all have this really uh, big responsibility. We got to start preaching the gospel to everybody, everywhere, ASAP, so that God will convert people and and forgive their sins and cleanse them from this unrighteousness called spirituality, but not religion. <sighs> Man. All right. We're up on our second break. And uh, when we come back, I'm going to be reading a meditation on Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. We're going to continue working our way through the book of Exodus. We're going to be looking at uh, Exodus chapter 3. And then we're going to be listening to a fantastic lecture presented by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt at South Orange County Outreach entitled, The Gospel for Those... Broken by the church. You definitely, definitely, definitely do not want to miss that. So um thanks for staying with us through our little spiritual thing there. Um I want to remind you if you'd like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can be my friend on Facebook or follow me on Twitter and get our subversive secret tweets uh, via Twitter. Yeah, my name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
1: If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you are in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air, I breathe. This is the
3: air, I breathe.
1: Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio.
0: We live in a time when there are full-out attacks against the gospel and sound biblical doctrine. One particular threat that you need to know how to protect yourself from is the attack against the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. J.I. Packer called this doctrine the heart of the gospel, and this doctrine is now being openly attacked by liberals and emergents alike. This is why Pirate Christian Radio is featuring the book Pierced for Our Transgressions, Rediscovering the Glory of Penal Substitution. This book lays out the biblical underpinnings of this non-negotiable doctrine as well as its rich historical pedigree. After reading this book, you'll have a deep biblical understanding of what Christ accomplished for you on the cross as well as possess a sound biblical and historical defense against those who are attacking this important doctrine. Pierce for Our Transgressions is available at piratechristianradio.com and is only $25 plus $4 shipping and handling and all proceeds help to support Pirate Christian Radio. So log on to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy today. are listening to Fighting for the Faith, hour number two. Well, something a little bit different today. One of the things we do as a family, the Roseboro family, is we uh, we read our Bibles together. And uh, funny enough, I've been I purchased this, actually given it was given as a gift, uh, the Treasury of Daily Prayer put out by concordia uh publishing house and uh talk about just an amazing resource for daily devotional study of god's word it's just outrageously great if you don't have a copy of the uh treasury of daily prayer and you're looking for something substantive you know to you know for some meat to apply to your uh to your scripture reading out know, you know some kind of a you know just the, that's the thing and the gospel readings for this uh Week have been just fantastic. That's the only word I can come up with. And and uh, what's funny is, is that uh, uh, the gospel reading from a few days ago was from Luke chapter ten, verses. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Luke chapter seven, verses one through ten. And just it just caught me just a particular way when I read it, and it it inspired me to want to write a meditation. I've never written a meditation before, so this is my first. For, foray into meditative writing, and uh, I don't know what came over me. I, but Anyway, let me uh, let me set this up here. Uh, this is called I'm Not Worthy to Have You Come Under My Roof, a meditation on uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. You can view it at extremetheology.com. Uh, it's published on April 30th, 2009. It begins with the text in question, Luke chapter 7. It says, uh, And after he, that's Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Wow. In this passage, we're introduced to a Roman centurion whose highly valued slave had come down with a deadly illness. The passage doesn't tell us whether he, it was the swine flu or a bacterial infection or cancer that had invaded the a servant's body. Uh, the text only tells us that this valued slave... Had become mortally ill. It's not hard to imagine the series of events that led up to this encounter with Jesus. We all know how this story begins because all of us at one time or another have suffered from a bad flu or virus or have been temporarily robbed of our ability to function in our daily uh, vocations. The backstory here is simple. A few days or weeks prior to this encounter with Jesus, this slave was going about his daily work and serving his master when he felt that feeling in his body that told him that something wasn't right. Maybe he ignored it for a few days, hoping that it would go away and that things would get better. Slaves had to work through their illnesses because slaves didn't get days off. Uh, Slaves didn't have simple nine-to-five jobs. Uh, Their work began at sunup and rarely ended when the sun set. Uh, The work was back-breaking, difficult, dirty, monotonous slaves didn't have a union to protect them slaves weren't employees they were property as the, as this disease ran its course this slave's productivity slowed and then finally stopped robbed of his ability to work stand eat and probably robbed of even his consciousness it was clear that death was stalking this slave like a, a lion stalks its prey Death had already cut this man from the herd and had taken its first bite. This slave was mortally wounded, and the only thing left was for death to do to do was to choose the moment for the kill. There was nothing anyone could do to stop death from taking its prize because no one had authority over death. Those who cared for this slave during his illness may have been secretly thinking that as terrible and terrifying as death was... That rather than being a monster, maybe death was in reality a welcome friend. Death, after all, meant release and freedom from the cruel bonds of slavery, while recovery from this illness meant an undetermined number of future years of forced labor and the humiliation of being someone else's property. The only problem with this idea is that we have no idea where death takes its victims. We'd like to imagine that death takes those whom it devours off to a place of bliss and happiness, Uh, But in the back of our minds, we've all heard stories about eternal places of torment, a lake of fire, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a horrible place where the worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. But let's not think about such things right now. Let's instead look more closely at this beautiful gospel story. The evangelist has also revealed for us some important information about this slave's master. Dr. Luke tells us that this Roman soldier, rather than being cruel and dictatorial, instead acted in kindness and generosity toward the people of Capernaum. As a result, he had earned their respect and admiration. This Roman centurion wasn't your stereotypical cruel occupation-style soldier— Rather than stealing from the people of Capernaum and setting up his own mafia-like protection racket, which is exactly what many Roman soldiers did, he instead reached out in kindness to the townsfolk of Capernaum, even to the point of personal sacrifice. His generosity staggers the imagination. This soldier, an agent of that hated pagan and idolatrous Roman Empire, personally bankrolled and built the synagogue in Capernaum. Just the thought of it makes you realize that this man was one of those rare human beings that made a difference in the world through random acts of kindness. By every standard of human goodness, this Roman soldier was not only a good man, he was a saint. When the religious leaders of Capernaum heard that this centurion's slave was mortally ill, they probably saw and felt the uh, the genuine fear and concern that this soldier had for his valued servant. This centurion wasn't worried about losing his valued property and having to go through the inconvenience of purchasing and training another slave. No, he was genuinely concerned for the slave's well-being, and he grieved over his powerlessness to save him. Imagine how difficult that must have been for the centurion. We learn from the text that he was a man with authority and power, and that authority was granted to him from the world's most powerful empire. When he told people to jump, they would dutifully ask how high. But this time he had no authority. He had no leverage. He had no power. Even worse, the pending death of his servant painfully reminded him that Like his slave, he would someday be on his deathbed, too. See, death is no respecter of persons. Death comes for slave and master alike, and both are powerless in death's grip. No human being that has ever lived has ever exercised authority over death. Enter Jesus. The scuttlebutt in Capernaum that day was that Jesus was nearby and that he might even come into town. Everyone had heard of Jesus. This man was a prophet like no other. God listened to Jesus, and Jesus was mighty in word and deed. The centurion thought that maybe Jesus would see his worthiness and would grant him a miracle by sparing the life of his beloved servant. The soldier thought that surely his kindness and personal sacrifice toward the people of Capernaum had earned him something from God. He imagined that he might actually have some authority that he could exercise in this situation. I mean, after all, he was a good man and had earned a reward or two from God. All he had to do was remind God of what he had earned and then call, in, call it in. He had got over a barrel. God owed him. It was time to remind God of his debt and demand that God pay up. The centurion quickly concocted a plan and a strategy for winning this battle against death. It was a simple and flawless plan, and all he had to do was exercise his authority over God through Jesus. He sent messengers uh, to the religious leaders and summoned them to his home. When they arrived, he reminded the synagogue leaders of his kindness and generosity to them, and then sent them to Jesus to convince Jesus of his worthiness to receive a miracle. Well, like dutiful messengers, the religious leaders obeyed the centurion and went to Jesus and delivered the centurion's message. Uh, The message was simple. This centurion was a good man because of his deeds, and therefore he has earned a miracle from God. This centurion was worthy. Therefore, Jesus, come at once to his home and pay up. Give this centurion the reward he has earned for his good works. The religious leaders delivered this message, and shockingly, Jesus, like a dutiful slave, like one who came to serve rather than to be served, obeyed the centurion's summon. The plan had worked. Jesus was coming to his home. He was worthy. God did owe him one, and God was now paying up. But wait. Something about the centurion's plan wasn't right something was off and he knew it the centurion paused and reflected on the situation and the more he thought about it the more he realized that in his self-righteous algebra that his self-righteous algebra wasn't adding up it turned out that he had grossly miscalculated his worthiness upon further reflection he realized that his kindness to the people of C- capernaum Could not outweigh and overcome his sinfulness and his wickedness. While stationed in Capernaum, he had heard the Torah and learned the Ten Commandments from the synagogue leaders. He knew that he did not love God with all of his heart. He knew that he was an idolater, a liar, a blasphemer, a thief, a coveter. He had taken men's lives and lusted after the girls in the village. Well, compared to other Roman soldiers, he might have seemed like a good man, but when he compared his life to the Mosaic law that was taught in the synagogue that he had built, it was painfully clear that he was a miserable and wretched sinner. His hastily concocted plan to convince Jesus that he was worthy to receive a miracle was preposterous. Uh, The centurion also knew that The good works that he had performed were not motivated by pure selflessness and love for God. In fact, some of his good deeds were motivated by political expediency and the belief that happy Roman subjects won't slit your throat in the middle of the night. Building a synagogue was a small price to pay for peace of mind. Some of his other good works were done in order to silence his conscience. None of them were motivated from a pure heart. And knowing this fact made his good work seem dirty and polluted. All of his good deeds were like filthy, stinking menstrual rags. What was he thinking by telling Jesus that he was worthy to receive this miracle? He wasn't worthy. He was a sinner. His plan had to be stopped, and it had to be stopped before Jesus arrived. The centurion's eyes welled with tears, "'because of the sorrow for the sins that he now felt, "'and his sorrow washed over him. "'But he had no time to weep. "'He had to act quickly. "'He found some friends, not servants, but friends, "'and hastily begged his friends to find Jesus "'and stop him from coming to his home.' When you find Jesus, tell him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, the centurion pleaded with his friends. Please tell Jesus that because of my unworthiness, I dare not presume to enter your holy presence. But please be merciful for the sake of my servant. Please just speak the word and he will be healed. I have no authority over death, but I believe that you do. As a man under authority with soldiers under me, I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now run, stop, Jesus, and please tell him these words, the centurion pleaded with his friends. The centurion's friends ran with haste and found Jesus just as he was turning the corner. The friends delivered the centurion's confession of his sinfulness and his unworthiness. And they also delivered the centurion's prayer of petition for his mortally ill servant. And good Dr. Luke tells us that Jesus marveled at what he heard. Jesus did not marvel at the centurion's paltry good works and so-called worthiness. No, Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. The centurion had repented of his sins and confessed his unworthiness to the only one who could forgive sins. And Jesus, the centurion's merciful and forgiving Savior, also answered his humble prayer on behalf of his servant and spoke the word, and the servant was healed. For he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. On that day, death was robbed of its prey and had to slink away hungry. Someone more powerful than death had arrived, and his name is Jesus. Jesus had authority over death, and he exercised that authority with a simple word. Death would eventually meet Jesus face to face on a Roman cross outside the city gates of Jerusalem, but death would also lose that battle. And as a result of Jesus' victory, death has lost the war, and Jesus proclaims that he is the resurrection and the life, and whoever has the same faith as this Roman centurion, even though he dies, yet shall he live. That day in Capernaum, the centurion understood what it was like to have his sins forgiven, And he, like the Apostle Paul, could say that he considered all of his good works to be like rubbish, and count them for loss in order that he might gain Christ, and be found in him not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. All right, we're going to switch gears one, well, two more times. We've been working our way through the book of Exodus. Why? Because it's important for you to hear God's word so that you're familiar with it, so that you can teach it. This is not about how theologically great Roseboro is. <clears throat> nah, that's not it at all. In the book of Exodus, we, meet, we read this amazing story of how Israel is held captive to slavery in Egypt and the Old Testament being a type and shadow of the things that are to come, point us to Jesus Christ. Jesus is not our new Moses, but he is the God who came to earth to set us free from, the slave, from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. He conquered all three. And so in the story in the book of Exodus, we hear of God's love for his people and his outrageous efforts to set them free. And what he had to go through in order to set them free. And to bring them out of slavery and into the promised land. Sound familiar? It's almost like a fairy tale, isn't it? But it's not. It's real history. And yet at the same time, the themes are all there. We read Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping his flock Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, flowing with milk and honey, uh, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, uh, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now keep in mind, in uh, Exodus chapter 2, we find out that Moses is a murderer. Why is God calling a murderer to do this? Maybe it's because God is such a merciful God. Moses said to God, If I come to your the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered through all throughout all generations. Go. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask her neighbor, and any woman who lives in her house, for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered. Uh, but behold, they, they will not believe me or, or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, Well, it's a staff. And He said, Well, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. Uh, but the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. And again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside of his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside of his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign. They may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have, you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, I will speak with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send somebody else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do these signs. And thus is our Exodus reading for today good stuff. Tune in tomorrow and we will have more from this story uh, tomorrow. Now, to end off the balance of the program, I'm not going to be playing the good, the bad, the ugly song because this is not really a sermon review. Instead, this is a very important lecture that was uh, given by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, co-host of the White Horse Inn radio program and literally my theological mentor. Um, this lecture is called The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church And I think this does a fantastic—Rosenblatt does a fantastic job of talking about those who are broken by the church through law, gospel, law, preaching. Definitely want to hear this lecture. And um, for those of you who would like to reproduce it and pass it along to your friends, you can get a hold of this, get copies of it at newreformationpress.com. So I um, want to re- you know, recommend that, you, you know, I, I, obviously I stop the tape and, and comment on things. So if you want a clean copy of it, the way you get a hold of it is at New Reformation Press from their website. So without any further ado, uh, let's uh, dive into... <clears throat>
2: <clears throat> Thank you very much. This evening I want to address a particular problem what a Christian might be able to say in conversation with people who see themselves as alumni of the Christian faith. And, of course, I'm not referring to those who've been translated by death from what Christians call the church militant into the church triumphant. I mean people we meet or know who say that they once believed that Christ and his shed blood freely justified them before God God freely forgave all of their sin, freely gave them eternal life, but who add that they no longer believe these things. It seems to me that in the four Gospels, roughly that's biographies of Jesus, virtually every person who rejected Jesus' claims to be God and Messiah, the Savior of the world, went away either sad or mad. First, I'm going to try to deal with today's sad ones, the longing, the having given up on Christianity ones. Second, I want to talk a little bit about the gospel of Christ for today's mad ones, the angry ones. I can't tell you how much it bugs me that there exists such a group as the one called Fundamentalists Anonymous. But there is such a self-help group, If there's any kind of Christian recovery group, I want it to be Liberal Protestants Anonymous or Recovering Neo-Orthodox Protestants or Liberation Theology Advocates Anonymous or Open Theism Recovery Group. You get the idea. For all of its faults, American fundamentalism at least is Christianity of a sort. Yet still, to be perfectly honest, I really can understand why such a group as Fundamentalist Synonymous exists. Maybe you can, too. Many of these people about whom or to whom I want to speak tonight are casualties of Bible-believing churches. Some seem to be able to remain in this form of Christianity for years and years, but certainly not all. For some reasons, reasons which I think are very specifiable... More people than we would like to think leave fundamentalist Christianity. I think the same dynamic is often the case with people who belong to what are called the holiness bodies, Wesleyan Christianity. Some are sad about it, some are angry about it. You might say, well, my church is certainly not fundamentalist. I think mine is part of what Newsweek and Time call mainline churches. If that is the case, probably not much that I have to say tonight will be very helpful to you. I'm not going to be talking much about mainline Protestant churches, liberal Lutheran, liberal Presbyterian, Episcopal, for the simple reason that for most of them there isn't enough theology left to make people either sad or mad. Make them convinced that they have to leave or their hearts will break or makes them leave because if they don't, they fear they they will uncork on some shepherd or sheep and get arrested for it. The reason for this is, I think, a relatively simple one. There just isn't enough substantial theology in most mainline Protestant churches to upset anybody. There is not much of anything left in mainline Protestant sermons or curricula, except maybe lessons in ethics, perhaps new opportunities for social service, As one wag put it, the trouble with theology today is that there isn't any. Many of us have met and talked with the sad alumni of Christianity. And many of us have also met and talked with, with some of the mad alumni of Christianity. The venue may vary, but most of us know or have met men and women who tell us that Christianity once was a part of their life in years past, but that they no longer consciously identify with Jesus Christ in his claim to be God and Savior. Every pastor runs into these people. So do lay people. It seems to go with the territory these days. You and I know them, meet them. You might be one of them. I've run into it in decades of working on the college campus, first with the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, later as a professor. In those roles, it has been, I think, for whatever reasons, easier for students to tell me the truth. I think they have said things to me that they were afraid to tell their pastors or priests. I think they have said things to me that uh, were easier to tell a professor, uh, such as you once believed that Jesus was your sin-bearing Savior, but that you no longer believe that. Or that you wish you could still believe in Jesus, but it's just intellectually impossible. If you're a Christian pastor or layman, you probably have more than once heard the same thing from friends or acquaintances. In our day, there are so many of these people that it's hard not to come into contact with them. There are thousands of them. First, a few words about the sad alumni. Many of these people were broken by the church. I know that sounds harsh. As Christians, it's bothersome to hear words like that. But for many people, this is how they really see what has happened to them.
0: Now, I'm going to pause right there and say this is something that I can completely uh, relate to. If it wasn't for Dr. Rod Rosenblatt, I would be an atheist and an angry one at that today. And uh, Richard Dawkins and I would be having beers down at the local pub uh, talking about our hatred of Christianity and, and how... Uh, god has messed up everything. Yeah, I that's exactly where I'd be because let me tell you. I was definitely chewed up and spit out by the church machine. And the reasons that he's going to give here are very very close, almost identical to the very things that happened to me. We continue
2: Now, almost certainly, many of us have also had contact with people who have struggled for their whole lives with being deeply upset psychologically. The church, for whatever reasons, draws people who the professionals recognize as bipolar or wrestling up against what they call clinical depression or whose guilt is so great that they are inwardly immobilized, people who are so frightened that just coping day by day is truly heroic. But it's not about any of these people that I'll be speaking tonight. I'm not competent to do so. It seems to me that such people deserve all of the care and empathy that we can muster. But again, it's not about such people that I'm speaking tonight. By the sad alumni of the Christian faith, I mean the hundreds and hundreds whose acquaintance with the Christian church was often one in which they were helped to move from unbelief or from a suffocating moralism into real saving faith in Jesus Christ. They heard the preaching of God's law and then heard the announcement of Christ's work on their behalf on the cross. Jesus, the God-man who met the law's demands for them, died for their sin, died to save them, died to give them eternal life. They heard the wonderful message of God's grace in the cross and in the death of Jesus Christ. They heard the astonishing news that God and Jesus Christ died for them "'died so that they can be and are freely forgiven "'based solely on his atoning death. "'They heard that Christ's blood redeems sinners, "'buys us out of our self-chosen enslavement. "'They came to believe that Christianity is not so much "'about what is in our hearts "'as much as it is about what's in God's heart. "'And this proven by Christ's vicarious and atoning death for them "'and his resurrection three days later, all for their sin.' They came to believe that the cross of Christ was their salvation. For free...
0: Now, stop. Did you hear that? He's describing people who've heard the gospel. And the problem with so many churches is not that they don't preach the gospel per se, but it's really not for the believers. Free...
2: And forever. But something happened after that, something that broke them. And in general, I think what happened is nameable, at least in many cases. In my Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we would speak of it as the confusion of law and gospel. Dr. Charles Mansky, the founding president of Christ College Irvine, used to teach a course in Christianity for freshmen. In that course, he characterized the various churches of Western Christendom this way. Rome, law. Lutheran, law-gospel. Wesleyan evangelical, law-gospel-law. I think Dr. Mansky was definitely on to something here, and I think it is that third point that results in a lot of sad alumni of Christianity. Now, if you're Lutheran or Reformed, we too have a category that if not done carefully and well will turn out just as destructive as any Wesleyan, Pentecostal, or Nazarene preaching. I'm referring, of course, to the third use of the law. In Lutheran theology, the content of this third use of the law is spelled out in a section of our Book of Concord, specifically in what we call the Formula of Concord. If you're Reformed, you will recognize this category immediately, recognize it as tracing back to Calvin himself. Two, if I'm correct, in what Calvinist Christians call the three forms of unity, the canons of the Synod of Dort, the Belgic Confession, and the Heidelberg Confession. If I'm wrong on this one, not being reformed, I apologize for an inaccurate characterization of your position. What do we Reformation folk mean by the third use of the law? It claims to be primarily informative— informative for the Christian, and something which fleshes out what is the will of God for me as a Christian day by day. What about the law thundering to us that we are deeply fallen, unable to fix our problem, that we're guilty before a holy God and his holy law, and unless God does something one-sidedly to rescue us, we're without hope and certainly condemned. That we folk from the Reformation call the second use of the law, the theological use. Luther thought this was the major function of the law in all of the Bible, designed to drive us to despair of our character, our works, our uh, anything, and to drive us to Jesus Christ as the atoning dying lamb substitute for our sin, mine and yours. At any rate, if we Reformation people do the third use of the law badly, we get very close to the infamous application section of the sermon, so common in Wesleyan and evangelical preaching. And if we do it badly, the sensitive Christian believer can be driven to a slavery as bad as any, any slavery done to them by a totalitarian dictator. If the Ten Commandments were not impossible enough, the preaching of Christian behavior, of Christian ethics, of Christian living, can drive a Christian into despairing unbelief, not happy unbelief, Tragic, despairing, sad unbelief. It's not unlike the unhappy Christian equivalent of Jack Mormons, those who finally admit to themselves and others that they can't live up to the demands of this non-Christian cult's laws and excuse themselves from the whole shebang. A diet of this stuff, from pulpit, from curriculum, from a Christian reading list, can do a work on a Christian, at least over the long haul, that is faith-destroying. You might be in just that position this evening. Many of us have friends whose story is not a far cry from this. We all regularly rub shoulders with such alumni of the Christian faith, sad that the gospel of Christ didn't, for them at least, deliver the goods. It didn't work. In a Christian context, the mechanism of this can be, I think, a fairly simple one. You come to believe that you've been justified freely because of Christ's cross and blood. Freely, for the sake of Jesus' death and innocent sufferings, God has forgiven your sin, adopted you as a son or daughter, reconciled you to himself, given you the Holy Spirit, and so on. Scripture promises these things. Verses like, "...be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect," Seem now, at first read, to finally be possible, now that you're equipped for it. Or you hear St. Paul as he writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Same thing. You realize that you might have had some excuse for failure when you were a pagan, but that's over. Now you've been made a part of God's family, have become a recipient of a thousand of his free gifts, and then the unexpected sin continues to be a part of my life. Stubbornly won't allow me to eliminate it the way I expected. Continuing sin on my part seems to be just evidence that I'm not really a believer at all. If I were really a believer, this thing would work. And we start to imagine that we need to be born again again. And often the counsel from non-Reformation churches is that this intuition of ours is true. Try going again to some evangelistic meeting. Accept Christ again. Surrender your will to His again. Sign the card. When the pastor gives the altar call, walk the aisle again. Maybe it didn't take the first time,
0: but it will the second, and so forth. Uh, Now notice, in those non-Reformation churches that are making those recommendations... It's you got to, there's something wrong with you. You got to try harder. Maybe it'll take the second time. Uh, The assumption is, is that sin, uh, well, you shouldn't be sinning anymore. So what's the solution? You, you try harder, try it again. Maybe it'll take the second time, but it's not the gospel. Never the freeing words, Christ has died for you Your sins are forgiven. That's not even an option for somebody who's already made the decision. We continue. How
2: do I know this one from the inside? You might be able to tell that I don't have to search for words, and you're right. I was brought up in a pietistic Norwegian Lutheran church. For those of you who haven't heard the term pietistic or pietism, It began with certain Lutherans, Arndt and Spanier and others, who wanted a more living Christianity than seemed to be taught and
0: encouraged in their Lutheran parishes in Germany. Now, how does this language play out today? People don't need to hear the gospel, they need to be taught how to live it. Whenever somebody says that, run. They're going to give you the law and they're going to withhold the gospel.
2: But it was as close as Lutherans in Germany, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and America ever came to being just like Teutonic or Scandinavian outposts of Biola or Wheaton College. The Reformation emphasis on Christ outside of us, dying for us, and on the justification of sinners gratis was de-emphasized. Baptism and the Lord's Supper were de-emphasized. Instead, the emphasis shifted to the individual's experience of conversion and to the
0: victorious life of the true Christian day by day. Notice, it's not that those things weren't altogether missing. They were just de-emphasized. We don't need the Lord's Supper except for once a year. Christ's death on the cross for you... Well, we save that message for Evangelism Sunday, right after the 4th of July. And if you're already a Christian, this won't be applied to you. But bring your unsaved friends so they can get on the rat wheel. If you're
2: interested in this, one of the early first issues of Christian history was devoted to the issue of pietism. It's a far more positive presentation of it than I would give. If you're interested in what I think is a better critical evaluation of it, they are the lectures by Dr. Ron Feuerhan uh, of the St. Louis uh, Missouri Synod Seminary, and I think his is much more realistic about what this stuff is and the problems it causes. Uh, see me at the break if you want to know it. They're called the Peeper Lectures, and that was in vo- his is in Volume 3, Pietism and Lutheranism. My church's pietism made an agnostic of me by the time I was a senior in high school. The evangelical parish of your youth might have had the same result in your case. How so? Well, imagine a Sunday school curriculum filled with Bible stories designed to teach a moral point with every lesson. Beware Sunday school curricula. That stuff is dangerous to children. One of the happiest days of my life was the morning when, standing in the church narthex, My wonderful father delivered me out of Sunday school forever. He had, with a single stroke, delivered me out of the hands of gray haired women trying to make me more moral using Bible stories to do it. It was like escape from prison. He had again made my life happier. It was not the last time, by any measure, either. But really, it wasn't the fault of those gray haired Sunday school teachers either. It was the theology they were assigned to teach. It was the curriculum, the content of the lessons that they were assigned to teach to kids. Such Sunday school material should never have been allowed to make it into our parish. Now, even though I'm not Reformed and I don't speak Reformed very well, let me see if I can use a couple of categories from the Heidelberg Catechism to guess how you might have had the same dynamic in its problems, at least if it's executed badly. Think of the paradigm guilt, grace, and gratitude. Don't you have the same sort of problems we Lutherans had with Pietism, at least where the paradigm is is executed badly? If I'm elect and regenerate, why is it that my gratitude is so small, so lacking, on a daily basis? The hurrier I go, the behinder I get. Or, if I really were elect, my life would certainly reflect that fact more than it does. Maybe I'm just fooling myself. Maybe I'm not really elect. Because the peace, the joy, the confidence Paul says the Christian is to have and that other Reformed believers seem to talk about, I don't have. I'd be lying if I said I did. Maybe I never was part of the elect, and I'm still not. For those of you who are Wesleyans, you're in this mess up to your eyeballs. Wesley's charge to his pastors was very clear. They were called to, one, evangelize pagans, something for which Wesley gets an A in my book, and two, to urge parishioners on to Christian perfection, something for which Wesley would get an F from me, uh, especially the way he executed it. Sunday after Sunday of exhortation, that is, law. If it's of any comfort to you Wesleyans, you can blame us Lutherans for a lot of this stuff. We Lutherans try to blame the Strasbourg Reformed for for Lutheran pietism, but I'm not so sure we didn't do it all on our own steam. Through Nicholas von Zinzendorf at Herrenhut and Peter Böhler, we Lutherans bequeathed a lot of this mess of ours to Wesley. I wish I could say it all came from Wesley's reading of the Church Fathers, from reading William Law and others like Law, but I can't. In fact, it was we Lutherans who managed to corrupt all sorts of denominations with this junk. Not just our own Lutheran churches, but all sorts of free churches, the Brothers Wesley, Cotton Mather in the New World, Uh, I can't answer for Jonathan Edwards. He is a total mystery to me. Um, This stuff knew and knows almost no bounds, and almost all of it traces to Lutheran Germany in an earlier century. If this stuff was done to you in some Protestantish church, I apologize to you. We thought Lutherans might just have been the ones who bequeathed to your denomination, to your pastor's seminary profs, this stuff. If we did, I apologize. Now, for our purposes this evening, the upshot is always the same. Broken ex-Christians who finally despaired of ever being able to live the Christian life as the Bible describes it. So they did what is really a sane thing to do. They left. The way it looks to them is that the message of Christianity broke them on the rack. To put it bluntly, it feels better to have some earthly happiness as a pagan and then be damned than it feels to be trying every day as a Christian to do something that is one continuous failure and then be damned anyway. Right. Exactly. Trust me on this one. This is how things look. Now, it seems to me that the key question here is a very basic one. Can the cross and blood of Christ save a Christian? failing as he or she is in living the Christian life, or not. I hope that most of us would say that the shed blood of Jesus is sufficient to save a sinner all by itself, just Christ's blood, nude faith in it, sola fide, faith without works, a righteousness from God apart from law, a cross by which God justifies wicked people, that is, me and you too. So far, so good, right? But is the blood of Christ enough to save a still sinful Christian, or isn't it? Does the gospel still apply even if you are a Christian, or doesn't it? It seems to me, one, that the category sinner still applies to me, two, that the category sinner still applies to you, and three, that the category sinner still applies to all Christians, If you're a Wesleyan and have reached perfection, what I have to say here doesn't, of course, apply to you. We'll give you your money back as you leave. But for the rest of us, it seems that what Luther said of the Christian being simultaneously sinful, yet justified before the Holy God, is critical. Is what Luther said biblical, or isn't it? Is it biblical to say that a Christian is simul justus et peccator, or no? Are we Christians saved the same way we were when we were baptized into Christ or when we came to acknowledge Christ's shed blood and His righteousness as all we had in the face of God's holy law? That all of our supposed virtues, Christian or pagan, were just like so many old menstrual garments, to use the biblical phrase, but that God imputes to those who trust Christ's cross the true righteousness of Christ Himself? We're pretty sure that unbelievers who come to believe this are instantly justified in God's sight, declared as if innocent, adopted as sons or daughters, forgiven for all sin, given eternal life, etc. But a Christian still save that freely? Or are we not? We're pretty clear that imputed righteousness saves sinners. But can the imputed righteousness of Christ save a Christian? And can it save him or her all by itself or no? I think the way we answer this question determines whether we have anything at all to say to the sad alumni of Christianity.
0: Yep, exactly. You are going to give them the gospel or you going to give them the law? They already tried that and it broke them. We
2: Lutheran pastors haven't done a great job of getting the, across the central nature of righteousness by imputation alone. I hope you've done a better job of it than we have. Decades ago, a gigantic survey of our clergy and laity across synodical lines, ask somebody else what a synod it is, across synodical lines showed um, that we Lutheran pastors hadn't even convinced our own members of the sufficiency of Christ's cross and blood and death.
0: Think of this as a Lutheran version of the Reveal Conference before there ever was a Willow Creek.
2: I mean Lutheran members who might never have sneaked out to attend some revival, might never have spent five minutes watching crazy Trinity broadcasting. The book was called A Study of Generations, and 75% of the laity gave perfect Roman Catholic answers to the questions. When you die, are you sure you will enter heaven? Answer, I hope so. If you do get into heaven, how will you get in? Well, I was president of the congregation four times. My wife and I tried to tithe. For 20 years, we sang in the choir till our voices just couldn't do it anymore. We both taught Sunday school for years. Perfect Roman Catholic answers. And this survey was decades ago. What the sad alumni need to hear, perhaps for the first time, is that Christian failures are going to walk into heaven, be welcomed into heaven, leap into heaven like a calf leaping out of its stall, laughing and laughing as if it's all too good to be true. It isn't just that we failures will get in, it's that we will probably get in like that. We failures in living the Christian life, as described in the Bible, will probably say something like, you mean it really was that simple? Just Christ's cross and blood? Just his righteousness imputed to my account as if it were mine? You've got to be kidding. And all of heaven is ours just because of what was done by Jesus outside of me, not in me? On the cross, not in my heart? Not in my Christian living? Not in my ethics and my behavior? Well, I'll be damned. <laughs> but, of course, that's the real point, isn't it? Yeah. As a believer in Jesus, as your substitute, you won't be damned. No believer in Jesus will be.
0: See, this is the message that we all need to hear. This is the Christian gospel, and it's for believers, not just unbelievers. We all need to hear it week in and week out. I do, and I believe you do too.
2: Not a single one. As C.S. Lewis put it, there are going to be a lot of surprises at the Eschaton. There are going to be people there that we just don't imagine will be there. Think of the non-Israelite that Lewis purposely put in heaven at the end of the last battle. Boy, did that ever get the goat of some Christians. And then he tells him why. uh, Aslan, the lion, says to him, I suppose you're wondering why you're here. (laughs) And then he tells him why. Uh, There are going to be in heaven believers in Jesus who never darkened the door of a church. Now, that's no encouragement not to intend not to be baptized and not to receive the Lord's Supper. It's just saying that faith in Jesus saves. Saves by itself, nude, apart from works. There are going to be scads of Roman Catholics, people who never listened, not really, to the theology preached by their priests just believed in the sufficiency of Jesus' blood, no matter what their priest was preaching. People of all sorts who just believed in Jesus and his blood shed for their sin as complete payment. There are going to be call girls, there are going to be drug dealers, maybe even a couple of lawyers,
0: though I doubt it. (laughs) Sorry, DeLoach, I hope you're not listening. Um, He has this thing against attorneys.
2: There are going to be members of the cults who never got what the cult leader was teaching but trusted in Jesus' blood and cross and that it was for their sin and for their hatred of God and for their wickedness. Surprises. Lots of surprises. It bugs me to say it, but there might even be an IRS employee, maybe a congressman or a congresswoman. Everybody has some class of people they don't really want to die as believers in Jesus. Those are mine. But to put it closer to home... There might even be a theologian or two who believed in Jesus. Bet the blue chips on the blood of Jesus and nothing else? Nothing in addition to that blood? There might even be a despicable leftist socialist college professor or two. Academics who daily sold out the wonderful American Constitution and instead filled their students' heads with status drivel and mush. In heaven we will meet cowards, scum, bottom of the barrel, reprehensibles, jerks, deadbeat dads, murderers, all sorts of rabble. And they died believing in Jesus and his blood as their only hope. Ask yourself, is sola fide true or is sola fide not true in the case of failing Christians? Is Paul's letter to the Galatians true or no? And if Galatians is true, and it most certainly is, but an apologia for that is not our subject, can a failing Christian be saved simply by the cross and blood of Christ? Can he or she not be so saved by by Christ's shed blood alone? If you answer, yes, he or she can, that's the message that's gotten lost on most alumni, most Jack Christians at least the ones I've met. How many times the law has already done its work on them. Boy, has it ever done its work on them. They need more law they, like they need a hole in the head. The law was and is killing them. Now, true, Paul says the law kills. He writes as if that's what the law is for. The law is designed to crush, to crush human pride and suppose self-sufficiency toward God. It is intended to kill, designed to kill. The biblical connection is law slash sin. What gives sin its power is the law. And more so, it looks like the law is designed to make the problem even worse. It is to be gasoline on an already blazing fire. Want to have sin run out of control? Go to a church in which the law is preached, then the law is preached again, and more stringently and deeply, and then the law is preached even more. You'll create sin. Think of John Lithgow's portrayal years ago of a law-preaching pastor in the film Footloose. Didn't you just cringe? I mean, even if you're a Southern Baptist, you had to cringe at that character. Drawing the Christian line in the sand at the possibility of a high school dance? Lithgow couldn't listen to his daughter, even if hearing her would have instantly resulted in world peace. Man, was he righteous. In Footloose, Lithgow's wife should have been the pastor. Don't quote me. I could be thrown out of the Missouri Synod for even joking about such a thing. You Missouri Synod Lutherans, that's a joke. Chill out. Or as Phil Hendry says in the ad, it wouldn't hurt you to laugh. You non-Lutherans, all of this is an inside joke. Ask your Lutheran friends later why that's a joke in our circles. My point is that the whole film, Footloose, was Jesusless. No cross, no atonement, nothing of Christianity, really. Same as chariots of fire, completely Christless, completely gospelless. Yeah. Now back to the point. For many of the Jack Christians we've met, the law is all their ears have ever heard. For them, the gospel often got lost in a whole bunch of Christian life preaching, and it did them in. So they left. And down deep, there's a sadness in such people that defies description. If you and I don't understand that, we should... They were crestfallen, so great their hopes, so devastating the failure. C.F.W. Walther, early guy in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, said that as soon as the law has done its crushing work, the gospel is to be instantly preached or said to such a man or woman. Instantly. Walther said that in the very moment that the pastor senses that the law has done its killing work, he is to placard Christ and his cross and his blood to the trembling, the despairing, and the broken. Be of good cheer, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And he, when he comes will neither break the bruised reed nor quench the smoldering wick. When you turn, re- return, remember me. I tell you, this day you shall be with me in paradise. It's finished. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree. God made him to be sin who himself knew no sin. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that faith in Jesus not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God lest any man should boast. And to the man who does not work, but trusts the one who justifies the wicked, his faith is countered as if it were righteousness. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law, Knowing a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. But now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Secondly, now, let's talk about the ones who are not sad but mad.
0: Oh, before man... That whole litany of the gospel, great stuff.
2: It's not all that uncommon. I find these angry ones have usually not switched from Christianity to another religion, nor have I found that they switched from one Christian denomination to another. Instead, I find that they are angry at any and all religions and anyone who represents any religious position, but especially Christianity. And that's natural. After all, it was Christianity, as they see it, that used them up and threw them away. I suppose the most visible examples of this would be men like the late comedian Sam Kinison and ex-Roman Catholic George Carlin. You may and probably do know better contemporary examples than I know. All of us are in the vicinity of people like this at one time or another. Maybe know a few of them as friends, or have at least met two or three in passing. Maybe you are one of them. Why do I say that? Because such people are, as I said, not all that uncommon these days. Now, I certainly can't this evening exhaust the dynamic involved in such people. Again, I'm no clinical psychologist. But I think a lot of the mad alumni also have a nameable history, just as the sad alumni have one. People like this often speak as if Christianity baited and switched them, just like a used car salesman baits and switches a
0: young couple at a car lot. Right. Now listen carefully to this. This is exactly the bait and switch that's going on in these seeker-driven churches that the sermons we review over and over and over again. Listen carefully to the thing that Rosenblatt lays out as far as what the bait and switch is. Very profound, and he's spot on. Christians promised
2: them a new life in Christ in such a way that it was going to be a life of victory, God's designed route to earthly happiness, a new divine power that would solve the problems obsessing them. Then, when the promises didn't seem to work the way they were supposed to, the church put it right back on these believers that they were somehow not doing it right. They weren't reading their Bible enough, they weren't praying enough or praying right They weren't attending enough church meetings. They weren't making right use of the fellowship. You name the prescription, you fill in the blanks any way you want to. Some pastor or layman told them that Christianity was failing them because they weren't doing it right. And often these believers took that counsel to heart and set themselves to trying to do it better or do it right so that it would work. But again, Christianity
0: seemed not to deliver on its promises. It didn't work. It, by the way, the term nowadays is not the victorious Christian life. No, that's not in vogue. It's the abundant life. As they see it, they gave it every shot,
2: and Christianity failed to deliver. And then to boot, they were called guilty for not doing it right. These people feel not just disappointed. They feel betrayed. They feel conned. And they, they should. They scammed. And they should and they are deeply angry about it. Or take another example. Those who heard much of Christ and his saving blood and cross in an evangelistic meeting, they became Christians. Then they heard very little of that wonderful message in the week-by-week pulpit ministry of their congregation. Instead, they heard recipes as to how to conquer sin over and over and over or how to have a more intimate marriage. Or how to raise drug-free kids. Fill it in any way you want. It's law. See, these people often gave up on Christianity, and they are angry, really angry about it. And I don't blame them, really. Nor should you. The church has an obligation to preach the gospel to people on a weekly basis. And deep down, they somehow knew that. But if that isn't what happens, they react. I would, too. After all, what does the church have for a man, a woman, a child, other than Christ and his work on their behalf? Not much. Not compared to the gospel of Christ preached as crucified for them and for their sin, Christ risen from the dead for their justification, not compared to being absolved, not compared to eating the body of Christ given into death for their sin, drinking the blood of Christ shed for their sin. Is there anything we can do that is of genuine help to such angry alumni of Christianity? I think so. And the answer I'm about to give you comes from a guy close to one of those angry ones. From whom? From Sam Kinison's brother. One night, I happened to be watching one of those 60 Minutes-type shows, and it was an, inter- an interview with Kinison's brother. After Sam was in an auto accident on a lonely highway near Las Vegas, he lay dying. His brother was cradling Sam's head in his arms as Sam was dying. The interviewer on this 60 Minutes show asked Sam's brother about Sam's hatred of Christ. And his brother looked at the interviewer and said, What? You think that Sam wasn't a Christian believer? You're wrong. Sam died as a believer in Jesus Christ. You'll see Sam in heaven. Definitely. Sam was never angry with Jesus. He was angry at the church. And I jumped out of my chair and I yelled, That's it! There it is. There's the answer from Sam Kinison's brother. What did I mean, that's it? We can respond to the angry and say something like, Oh, I see. You're not angry at Jesus Christ. You're angry at the church. Boy, join the club. So am I. And so are a whole bunch of other Christians. Now, here, if I had time, I would digress on how Christians angry with Christ will be saved by his cross, too. But it isn't the subject for tonight. Now, this response takes more than a few minutes of thought on our part. That is, am I really ready to say such a thing? And that's not an easy question. For many of us, especially us clergy, this question can be really difficult. Why? Because there's a predictable psychological profile of the clergy, including our closer relationship with our mothers than it was with our fathers. For most of us pastors, the link between Jesus and the church, a mother symbol, is so tight, so identical, that to be angry with mother church is the same as rejecting Jesus. It isn't. But I'm recommending, at least in conversation with the angry, that we, all of us, identify with the anger of these people at the church, and then we say, well, of course you're angry. With what it did to you, it'd be insane not to be angry at it. Yep, I know that one. hmm I just misunderstood. I thought you had dismissed Christ. Thanks for clarifying. Now, again, I know this is tough stuff. It raises questions in us that are not easy ones, particularly for us pastors who were closer to mom than we were to dad, and unfortunately, that's a very high percentage of us. Uh, We're also first sons, 85 to 95 percent of us. But I recommend that we take the hit. It's not unlike the case with something like the Crusades or the Inquisition. I think most of us don't want to defend everything the church has done in the past, at least I hope we don't, And believe me, the angry alumni are listening closely to see whether we're going to defend the church as much as we defend the gospel. I recommend that we do not defend the church as much as we defend the gospel. I recommend that we immediately cop to horrendous things done by the church. For those of you who are Lutheran, this is not the time to catechize this guy into the finer points of Luther's two kingdoms theory. Now let me illustrate with a couple of particularly embarrassing examples from my own church's history. Believe me, you've got parallels in your church, too, if you have one, no matter which one it is. One of the lowest points in Lutheran church history has to do with the Peasants' Revolt and with the persecution of the Anabaptists in the 16th century. The Peasants' Revolt deeply frightened Luther. Luther very much feared anarchy as the worst of possibilities. In a letter to the German princes, Luther ordered them to use the sword and to slash and slay anyone who was out on the streets behaving like a revolutionary. He quickly wrote a letter that appealed to the princes to ignore his first letter, but it was too late. The peasants, thinking that Luther was backing them, were astounded when they learned that Luther had ordered the princes to cut, slash, and kill them. They felt totally betrayed. A real dark chapter in my church's history. In a similar way, to the degree to which Anabaptist Christians represented any kind of spirit-given ecclesiastical anarchy, one that had no place for order, Luther unleashed on them, too. Lutherans took part in baptizing such people by immersion for ten minutes. Reformed, <laughs> Reformed and Roman Catholics went along with us in this, but right now I'm just speaking about us. Reprehensible? You bet. Do I want to defend such executions to one of those angry at the... Not a chance. Hate it as I might, I need to agree with the person with whom I'm speaking. Same with some of the anti-Semitic things Luther wrote later on in his life. I said that I recommend that we cop the church has done. We might be tempted to start trying to balance the charges. Mention the wonderful things the church has sometimes done. Um, I recommend against that, too. At least in an apologetics conversation. Later, we can speak about a book like Al Schmidt's uh, late book that catalogs just how the Western world's every corner was affected to the good by historic Christianity. But not at this time. Just let them fire away. But since hearing Kinnison's brother, I don't want to leave the matter there. You and I, copying to the evil done by the church, still leaves the angry one satisfied, sort of justified in his antichristic state, and still miles from the gospel. If the law has done its work on him, I want next to talk to this guy about the gospel. I want to talk about Jesus' claims, and if I can, particularly about Jesus' claims regarding what he was going to do for sinners, including me and him, on the cross. Now, you Lutheran pastors, don't talk to me at this point about the scriptural truths he would learn in your pastor's inquirer's class about sacraments. This kind of guy isn't going to come to your inquirer's class to learn about anything, including those. He's too angry. Same for you Reformed pastors. This is not the time to start talking to this guy about the scriptural truths he would learn in your pastor's inquirer's class about the finer points of predestination. He isn't going to come to your inquirer's class. He's too angry. So what am I going to do? I'm going to talk about the gospel as if it can be believed in totally apart from the church. You say to me, Rosenblatt, that isn't how Scripture presents the church. I answer, I know. But first things first. This guy needs Christ. Christ as priest. Christ as having bled for his sin. Christ as giving him eternal life for free. And in his mind, the church is what is keeping him or her away from Christ. If he comes to trust Christ and Christ's sin-bearing death, the guy might later on deal with passages about not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. But not now. To this guy, the church and its behavior are the on the scandal. The real scandal, according to Paul, is that we are sinners under condemnation and cannot do anything to make things right with the holy God. The true scandal in the New Testament is that someone else is going to have to satisfy God's justice for us because we are unable and unwilling to do it. To put it another way, we sinners are in need of a divine mediator. And without a divine mediator, we are doomed. Scripture says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. At the judgment, the law of God could justly declare us condemned. But the gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it on the cross, for free, for every one of us. If your friend can see for just a moment that the truth of the gospel does not turn on Christ's church, but only on Christ's resurrection from the dead... It might be the first time he's ever thought such a thought. Will he bend his knee to Christ as his lamb and substitute? Who knows? But you will have done him or her a great service. Would that all people who were angry agnostics or atheists were clear that their animosity toward the church for giving them nothing but moralism as soon as they became Christians is really understandable. We would have that same reaction. Believe it or not, that's progress. Progress. I've sometimes said to people who reject Christ and his death for their sin, well, you are one of the few I've met who has really rejected the Christian gospel for the right reasons. And congratulations for that. There aren't many of you. But I recommend you keep thinking about it and keep asking the question, did did Jesus really rise from the dead the third day or didn't he? Because if he was raised the third day, that is the best reason in the world world, to believe that he can make good on his claim that his death was a death for your sin and my sin, and that his cross and blood will be enough for anyone who dies still a sinner. Me, you too. Lastly, we might be surprised to find that this guy or this woman is a Christian. He's just vowed never to let a church do what's been done to him ever, ever again. Do you know a church that won't do that to him again? Don't answer too quickly. There are not a lot of these, no matter what the label on the door and no matter how glitzy. Most of today's churches will just re-inflame his anger, giving him law, gospel law. Find one for him instead that will speak to him of Christ after he's a believer. And if you don't know one, then tell him that. At least it's
1: honest. Yep.
0: Thanks. All right. So there's uh, Dr. Rosenblatt's lecture, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. I think it's uh, spot on. I think it's needed to be heard. And I think for those of you who are tuning into our uh, program here, and are curious and haven't quite figured out what's the deal with this Rosebro guy. Why does he keep harping about the, you know, well, the gospel and never, never seems to be telling me I have to live a better life. Where's the holiness thing? Uh, well, that's the Holy Spirit's job to work that out in you. I'll preach law and gospel, and let the Holy Spirit work out the application. All right, we're at the end of uh, another edition of Fighting for the Faith. I'd like to thank you for staying with us today. I want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is a listener-supported radio, which means that uh, we need your support in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you. You can uh, support us a couple of ways. You can uh, go to Fighting for the Faith and click on one of the Donate buttons. When you do that, you'll be able to give an online secure gift to Fighting for the Faith. Or you can do it the traditional way and make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. If you would like to email me, you can, and I love getting the emails. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. Or if you like, you can subscribe to my... Secret subversive microblog on Twitter. The name there is Pirate Christian. Alright, until next time. May the Lord bless you.